My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number six of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Sri Godesai, who is the director of Psychedelic School, a professional certification program for psychedelic leaders in training. My protocol is called the Psych Soul Method. It involves the set, setting, skill set, and support. Those are the four pillars that we work on. And to those two, I added two more skill set, which is what happens during the journey, uh, which uh, basically is a toolbox that I call self-shamanism and the support, which I find can alter the outcomes of psychedelic therapy. I help them draw out a psychedelic roadmap of what their potential healing journey could look like with what substances, at what doses, at what locations, and framing the preparation and integration sessions along that path. Some teachers say, well, you go into the experience and you just surrender. I don't believe in that. I believe that you can surrender to a degree, but I believe that a big part of the healing and the teaching of psychedelics is self-empowerment. And they're ultimately trying to teach us just how much agency and ability and capacity we have to create our experiences and our realities. Learning basically that there was always an invitation there. Sure, surrender, surrender to listen so you can listen and be guided but not surrender and just lay on the mattress and just let the medicine do whatever it wants to do to you. This is such an incredible time to be a part of the psychedelic movement. And so many people are stepping into the space right now, which of course brings with it a lot of pros and cons. And as we know, there's such a need and a demand for psychedelic education and psychedelic facilitator training. And I'm going to be interviewing a few different people who are really at the forefront of creating some exceptional programs for psychedelic facilitators, including this interview with Sri Godesai, who is a pioneering psychedelic integration teacher, a consultant, visionary entrepreneur. She's a coach, an author, depth psychology and spiritual scholar, and she's also a mother. Shri is the founder of the community nonprofit organization called Psychedelia, Psychedelic Integration Los Angeles. She's the founder and CEO, and I, I like how she calls herself the chief ecstasy officer of Psychedelic School, a virtual educational platform specializing in a professional certification program for psychedelic leaders in training. So she's going to share more about the program in this conversation, but her next training starts February 2nd. Applications are open, interviews are currently happening, and there is limited space for the program. So I'll include that link for you to check it out if you feel called in the show notes. So one of the things Sheree mentions in this interview is that when she started having these life-changing experiences with psychedelics, there wasn't a lot of tools available. And so she started to create them. And I feel very much so the same way. I've been working with psychedelics for over 20 years and just want to highlight that we are living in such a different time where it's a lot more safe to publicly share information right now. And only a few years ago, practically no one was talking about psychedelic integration. And now you hear it everywhere. 
And so I like having these conversations with other people who also felt alone in the process and felt the call to develop a framework. And it feels like this beautiful experience of all sorts of different people coming out of the woodwork, coming out of the nooks and the crannies, the shadows and the closets, and stepping out to meet and connect and share experiences and information. We also now have more access to elders, to people who are willing to speak openly about it, to learn from indigenous wisdom keepers and teachers from all walks of life. So it's just, it's such an exciting time to be really involved in this movement right now. And it's just been so nice for me to be able to ask other people what tools they've created, what they've learned from their teachers, what other modalities they've found helpful to combine with working with psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. And so Cherie's approach draws from transpersonal humanity studies, Eastern philosophy, and shamanic healing modalities to fuse ancient wisdom with modern practices. And so it's pretty obvious from meeting Cherie that she's also passionate about creating grassroots, bottom-up, supportive systems that enable people to self-heal and live really an, an authentic and empowered life. And so she's created a program where she teaches her protocol that includes four pillars, set, setting, skill sets, and support. And we're going to dive into this in this conversation. And within skill sets, she talks about equipping people with tools she calls self-shamanism to navigate through and deepen into the psychedelic journey and gain new insights along the way. Now, there's something I want to say about this term self-shamanism before we dive into this interview. I think it's easy to throw around the word shaman these days. And in episode number two, I interviewed Sandra Ingerman, who's been teaching about shamanic wisdom for over 40 years. And she talks about the difference between shamanic practices and learning those practices and being a shaman. And if you haven't checked out that episode, it's really worth the listen. And I like this concept of self-shamanism. And I also think it can easily be taken out of context as so many things are these days. And so maybe there's a better word or term to prevent people who are new to working with plant medicines from erroneously believing that we don't need support from our elders or guidance from legitimate shamans. And in terms of what actually makes a legitimate shaman is another huge can of worms, which we won't dive into right now. And I think it's just generally a good idea to be in inquiry and reflection around the words that we use. And we do live in a time where we absolutely need to be more mindful of what we say and how we say it. And I think this is our collective growth edge right now. And I'll just say, it's also helpful to bring a balanced perspective and keep in mind that anything can be taken to an extreme that becomes detrimental in terms of what we feel safe to express. And I also believe there are more and less productive ways to remind each other to do better or quote unquote, hold each other accountable, which is another huge rabbit hole of a topic that I won't go down right now. But if you hear a person using a word you find inappropriate or that triggers you, you can either shame them or you can open up an engaging dialogue that brings a lot of curiosity. And I firmly believe that we don't grow through shame. So for this conversation, this term self-shamanism is being used in the context that in addition to having support from an experienced professional, we can also equip ourselves with skill sets and tool sets to navigate the psychedelic terrain. And that's a concept I absolutely resonate with. 
So maybe we can look past labels sometimes and really try to seek out the common ground that many of us do ultimately stand on together. And that's one of the things we talk about in the second half of this conversation, about how we can navigate criticism. Because there's just no way you can step out as a leader in this day and age in any domain and not get shit thrown at you. And so being a leader also requires learning how to navigate this, learning how to handle feedback and criticism and open dialogue to have meaningful conversations that ignite and catalyze real change. So in this conversation, Shri shares her framework and she offers quite a few tools along the way. We talk about strengthening our capacity to hold space for other people experiencing a lot of emotional pain, which feels like a very important topic, especially right now. She offers a tool for navigating fear. She dives into attachment theory and how she weaves that into her practice. Shri also discusses this term she coined called the psychedelic roadmap to help create a trajectory for her clients to maximize growth and healing. And we also talk about leadership and what she's learned along the way. So for each podcast episode, I create a full page on my website, livefreelauraD.com, that you can find on the podcast tab that includes all the links, show notes, full transcript, links to any resources mentioned in each episode. And you can also find guest biography as well as all the ways to get in touch with them. So I encourage you to check it out on the podcast tab, and that's where I'll include links to Cherie's Psychedelic Facilitator training programs. And on my website under the freebies tab, you can also swipe my eight-hour music playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond, or access my free eight-day microdosing course. If you've been enjoying this podcast so far, I would so appreciate it if you could leave a review for me on iTunes. That would really help support me and this creative project, and you probably wouldn't believe it, but each episode takes me an entire week to produce. And please feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or share with anyone you think might appreciate this content. And this episode features a new song I just found that I've been really enjoying lately called Let It In by a sister who's been going by Laughing Lady Love, but her new music is going to be coming out under her new name, LL. And so stick around to the end if you want to hear this song. It's got a little bit of this like conscious hip hop vibe to it, and I've been really enjoying it. And all of her links will be in the show notes of this episode. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Sheree Godesai. Welcome, Sheree Godesai. It is so nice to have you on the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Thanks for dropping in with me today. Thank you so much for having me and for your presence, Laura. Appreciate it. So I'd love to just dive right in here. Maybe we could just start with an overview of your framework and the modalities that you weave in and draw upon, and then we could dive into integration and some practical tools for people listening. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a Jungian uh, psychology trained person, right? So that's my framework. It's Jungian depth psychology. Uh, and of course, you know, my, my philosophy or my framework is not the uh, the only framework that exists and there are different takes on integration, of course, and there is room for everyone, right? But mine is the psychology lens. There are a few things that I base my theory on. Number one, integration is a never ending journey. Don't expect to integrate your experience after one, two or three sessions. Uh, as I know many integration coaches, that's how they're offering their practices these days. 
Uh, for me, it's a long-term, deep interaction with our archetypes, with the collective consciousness, always shining those antennas to, to hone in on those messages, again, in that sober state, which depth psychology in itself is just a, a psychedelic roadmap, right? So psychedelic roadmapping is actually a term that I coined as well. It's a, a journey that I take my clients on through articulating exactly, uh, I have um, a formula that I created, which includes a specific intake, doing a safety assessment, uh, understanding what their needs are, going into some trauma work to understand, you know, what they're, what they're coming into the room with. Cause a lot of people would, you know, they want to come in to have a mystical experience or to meet God or to get a breakthrough in creativity. And then when, you know, you, you speak with them for a little bit and you understand that there are some family issues, attachment issues, deep unresolved traumas, developmental traumas that typically uh, most always come up in the early stages of psychedelic healing. So we do some trauma work and then I help them according to, again, what they bring to the table, their presenting conditions or mental health or resources, who they are. I help them draw out a psychedelic roadmap of what their potential healing journey could look like with what substances, at what doses, at what locations, and framing the preparation and integration sessions along that path. But again, it's a long term, and I always recommend a minimum of uh, for clients who want to do uh, like classic psychedelic therapy for deep healing, a minimum of six months. And within a framework of three treatments, the three treatment model, mm-hmm. my protocol is called the psyched soul method. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a trademark protocol. So it, it involves the uh, set setting skill set and support. Those are the four pillars that we work on. So a lot of people know the set and setting concepts, the, which are the most early concepts of psychedelic education. And to those two, I added two more skill set, which is what happens during the journey. Uh, which uh, basically is a toolbox of self what I call self-shamanism that uh, people can utilize to deepen their journey, gain more insights, gain a lot more uh, self-agency, sustain their energy, uh, know how to take breaks, know how to go deeper, know how to minimize bad trips, quote unquote, which of course, as we know, they're not bad. Maybe they're challenging or difficult, but they're not bad. They're so uh, precious and useful mm-hmm. in their own way. So the navigation skill set is a part of my framework as well. And the support, which uh, I find also can alter the outcomes of psychedelic therapy and support can look like either someone that helps you uh, do the work before and or after or a peer or a community or just some other external container that can mirror you, reflect you, basically allow you to, as Salvador Dali said, just like to go out and get, go out, get out, get out of your mind in peace <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or just go crazy in peace. So you can uh, return to wholeness and just feel safe doing that. Mm. So set setting skill set and support are my four pillars of my, of the, the framework that I de- developed. Beautiful. Yeah. Can we dive deeper into, I love this term self shamanism. Let's, can we open a couple of tools out of the toolbox and just talk, talk a little bit, just to give people like a, a deeper sense of, of what you're really talking about. Sure. So the, another aspect of my integration um, philosophy or modality is that my service is based on providing you with the tools to be your own healer. 
So I, in my practice, you know, my practice, my coaching packages, there would be six months and with an aim of not continuing and renewing the, the package to double it to another six months or another three months, but to make sure that the client feels that they have everything they need to be able to be their own shaman. So the self-shamanism. So the self-shamanism can look like acute tools as in self-soothing, learning how to uh, to do uh, basic self-care, to, to make sure that you are in good and balanced emotional states, learn how to uh, sustain your energy and the daily. I'm talking about right now in the you know, mm-hmm. preparation, integration, sober, uh, quote unquote, stage that we keep talking about. Having um, anchoring practices, having mindfulness practices, giving them all the tools they need to just go through the everyday feeling like they, they, they can get through the day. In the journey itself, uh, we're talking more about a navigation skill set, uh, which can uh, look like very, some general things that you know every most uh, experienced psychonauts understand. For example, listening to the music and using it as a tool to go deeper into um, into your physical experience, into your emotional, your psychic experience. Learning how to ride the music waves to. Um, to again, help either dissipate the energy or go deeper, learning how to observe your mind in a way that you don't become your mind. So I call that mental observation, emotional observation, metaphysical observation, which uh, can look like recognizing if there are energies or spirits and learning how to be in dialogue with them, uh, what to do if there's fear or resistance, how to dismantle them. So one of my favorite strategies is that I use is uh, that my clients love is called personifying the fear. I'm an experienced psychonaut by now. Uh, I'm still, I still experience fear, you know, especially at certain doses with certain mm-hmm. medicines. I still feel fear approaching them. I have a high level of reverence for them. And I'm, yeah, sometimes I'm fearful. So approaching the fear as fear, false evidence appearing real, right? Fear, that's the acronym of fear, false evidence appearing real. and then observing it and finding it in the body and treating it like it's a person that's sitting in front of you. So asking it, just talking to it, who are you? Where did you come from? What is your name? What is uh, your message to me? What have you uh, come to show me? Why are you here? (laughs) And I find that when when you practice that, when you personify the fear, when you turn it into a, a living, breathing person, it strips away, it strips it away of its powers because it's a person that has intention, hmm. right? They, uh, they're approaching and having, typically they would have an eye-to-eye dialogue with you. One of my teachers said sometime that if you ever encounter uh, some type of like a malevolent energy or a spirit, get in, you get in dialogue with it. And if they, they don't want to interact with you, they don't, they can't dialogue with you. They will just squirm away. They'll just disappear. Mm -hmm. But if they're not malevolent, if they're not, you know, ill intending, they will talk to you. They will share their messages. They will reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, personifying fear is a great self-shamanism tool. And of course it can be used in the psychedelic state as well as in the everyday state, which really the whole skill set that I teach is, um, 
is a skill set for both worlds. Mm-hmm. It's the same skill set for both worlds, mm. except we may just uh, it may come out in different ways. Yeah, just the, the method might methods might be different when you use them, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, every day is a psychedelic trip, as we know. So. Totally. It is. It's an ongoing hallucination. And now we, we know that more accurately now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What? How do you work with people to balance intention with expectation? Mm, great one. Uh, so the short answer to that would be that, first of all, they're very different. That for intention, when you set your intentions for a session, then you set what it is and you also set it free, meaning you allow it to come into fruition without knowing how it will come into fruition. Mm-hmm. So basically inputting your target address in your GPS and not having to calculate how you're going to get there, just trusting that your GPS will lead you there, hell or high water, but you're going to get there and you're going to be just fine and you will get there. Hmm. Uh, whereas expectations were articulating the address and we also want to calculate exactly how we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. That's a more uh, set state of mind. You're more set on a very specific outcome and how things should be. And I tell my clients, you know, this is, you can approach it that way, but you will probably feel a lot safer, have a much deeper journey get to your outcomes even quicker than you think if you just relinquish that sense of control mm-hmm. and yeah just allow the uh, the great spirit divine intelligence to lead you to where you need to go mm-hmm. so it sounds like you've really created your own set of flight instructions and that you yeah. that you work with <laughs> people i really i really like that i'm curious if you have received a lot of direct insight and guidance working in your own psychedelic states, doing your own private work. Do you think a lot of what you've brought through to your clients and this framework has come directly from, you know, whether it's a plant teacher or a compound, are you working with plant medicines or psychedelic spaces from that intentional framework of show Mm. me the path, show me guidance. Like, is this the right way? Do you go into those places? Cause I know I do for sure. Just really opening up to the the divine influence. Has that been an influence for you? That is a wonderful question. I will say that a lot of the framework is stuff that has been done by observation and not by directly intending to find solutions to things or or, or downloading or receiving frameworks. So it's been more like a lot of this skill set that I'm, you know, that I teach is stuff that I literally learned through the work with the medicine. So for example, I remember one time I, in one of my earlier ayahuasca sessions, I sat and I was feeling very confused and just kind of like floating in the air. Um, not really sure where this was going. And then the medicine was, you know, started speaking with me. She said, you can, you know, you can ask me three questions, right? So what, if you could ask me anything, what could it be, right? So, so stuff like that. And then I would come home and I would reflect on that and see, well, actually you can be, in, you can speak to the medicine and you can co-create the experience. I don't believe, and this is another uh, big uh, aspect of the self-shamanism is that a lot of people say, some teachers say, well, you go into the experience and you just surrender. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. I believe that you can surrender to a degree, but I believe that a big part of the healing and the teaching of psychedelics is self-empowerment. And they're ultimately trying to teach us just how much agency and ability and capacity we have to create our experiences and our realities. So learning basically that there was always an invitation there 
sure, surrender, surrender to listen so you can listen and be guided, but not surrender and just lay on the mattress and just let the medicine do whatever it wants to do to you. There's completely two different aspects. So to answer your question, it's been more of an observation doing my own healing I'm still in many ways still working on deep intergenerational traumas. So I can't really say that I've gone in with intentions of creating per se, but more from, okay, what is happening in the here and now? What is happening in my integration practice? What support do my clients need going through their journeys? Mm-hmm. Most of the content that I've created actually has been in direct response to observing them and their journeys and writing articles about the themes that came up for them, seeing what what they were dealing with. So I would say it's actually more field practice than intentional work for me at this point. Mm, that's amazing. I'm curious if there's categories that you've noticed over the years of what people struggle with, with integration. Like what are some of the key topics of those articles that you've written about that or like, oh, okay, this is like a thing that people struggle with and this is how it can be remedied. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I would definitely say that trauma is typically a big stop for most people, even and especially if they're not expecting it or don't think that they have trauma. Mm. I myself am one of those people, even as a psychology student, I did not understand how much trauma I had. Um, for example, you know, we usually when we think of trauma, or at least the way that I used to think about it, is an, a specific, acute, isolated experience that happened in your life, like uh, a loss, a death, a car accident, a, you know, a disease, a divorce, some big, big disastrous life events. And we're not really aware of how actually most of us have suffered early childhood developmental trauma, uh, which is more of a topic that a lot of trauma specialists have been talking about the the last few years, like Gabor Mate, like Bessel van der Kolk, all the uh, somatic experiencing people. They don't have that in the DSM, which is our, our, you know, the manual for mental health. So early childhood developmental trauma uh, typically comes up a lot. Definitely family dynamics. I usually lead that to attachment theory because a lot of clients really love to make sense of who they are through those lens. So I introduce that typically, attachment styles. Also, uh, we talk about boundaries, a major concept, which again, think about it. For a lot of people that are approaching psychedelic therapy, why do they approach it? They typically approach it because they're either suffering from some type of a mental health condition, typically anxiety depression, sometimes PTSD, if they're aware of it, typically they're on some type of a medication or antidepressants and, or they have relationship issues with their spouses or partners and, or they're suffering from some type of an addiction. Most people, most of my clients are fall under one of those, fall under that description in one constellation or another, sometimes all of them together, sometimes just some of them. So when you look at that prototype, right, of that type of client prototype, then yeah, what does cause depression and anxiety? Typically, it is rooted in in family, in early attachment, in relationships, in insecurity, and not even understanding what boundaries are because their parents themselves, you know, they come from a very traumatized generation that does not, our parents don't have the tools that we have. They don't have the awareness that we have. No one talked to them about trauma. They didn't have the holistic psychologist on Instagram to tell them how you know messed up they are and how they can do the work, right? So our parents didn't model good, healthy boundaries. So a lot of us don't even have that concept. Mm-hmm. So we talk about boundaries. We talk about differentiation. 
skill sets that have to do with uh, learning what it means to be a sovereign being, an individuated being that has the right to have their own needs and their own desires. Uh, and of course, if they're that person, then, okay, how do they go back to their communities and their families being the new person that they are? There is a, a whole, once they accept who they are and that they have needs and desires and they're, you know, they're, they've accepted that, then they move into new challenges. Like how do they assimilate back into the family? If they're this new person now, how are, how is the, how are the people that knew them in a certain way, how are they going to receive them and what implications will that have, but that meeting? Um, <laughs> so then we move into typically a, a life skills relationship uh, module where, yeah, people understand that they have to start making some pretty difficult decisions about relationships, have to make some really mm -hmm. um, brave choices. Can we go deeper into attachment styles? Yeah. How do you apply attachment theory to this work? Sure. Well, okay. So attachment theory was developed by the psychologist, Mary Ainsworth. It is thought, according to uh, the research that they conducted, and this was a few decades ago, that, that there are three attachment styles depending on how the primary caregiver of the child, which is typically either the mother, the father, or uh, the nanny, whatever adult was present to take care of the child in their first two years of development, how well uh, or not so well did the primary caregiver respond to the needs of the baby? And basically, how, how were they able to make them uh, feel safe, secure, taken care of, and protected? So basically, it's all about it's all about level of levels of safety and security. So the three types of attachments are uh, secure, of course, which means that either they they've had the parents were good enough. We have that also that concept of being good enough, a good enough mother, a good enough father. Uh, so they were good enough, quote unquote, and the child had their needs met and they grew up to be secure individuals that are able to form healthy relationships in their adult lives. A second attachment style is the avoidant, which because they did not have their needs met according to what they needed, of course, and there isn't a standard, it's just according to what each person needs and their own um, uh, unique uh, blueprint, then the avoidant basically learned to not trust the primary caregivers and their coping mechanism is to avoid because they don't want to get hurt. They just learn to become extremely self-sufficient uh, and independent. And the third type is the codependent slash anxious, which uh, also did not have their needs met and their coping skill or mechanism or the, the, the behaviors that they learned was to, uh, to be codependent, to be overly attached. They learned that they can only exist if they have someone there to validate them and show them that they exist at all times. So secure, avoidant, and anxious uh, are the three, the three attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And so how do you apply this work to integration? Yeah. So after we, uh, we start unpacking, uh, usually, you know, in my early on in my consultation, usually I ask about the questions, well, you know, what's going on in your life? How are your relationships? What's the relationship like with, or how was it with the parents? What was your childhood like? 
So base, you know, asking open-ended questions that uh, invite the client to start speaking from their, uh, their experience and, you know, learning about what these relationships were like, uh, you know, I may ask also about like sibling connection. And so basically how are their relationships now and how were they in, in childhood? And then I, um, typically 99% of clients will remember something. Oh yeah. now, you know, I, I think this happened and I think that happened and yeah, my mom was too busy. You know, she was really like, you know, engaged with her work and I had to come back home from school on my own and warm up my own lunch or yeah, my dad always favored my brother and just things like that, that seemingly don't make too much of a difference. Right. Uh, because we've learned to not make a big deal out of them. But then in turn, what, what happened over time is that we've learned to minimize ourselves and our needs. And anyhow, so I, I unpack that and then we bring a, bring attention to that. And that's when I, I would introduce the, the uh, attachment style. And just it's, there's a fun little quiz that they can do online. Anyone can do online. You can even Google it or YouTube it. You can even watch the original experiment that they conducted back then to, uh, to create the attachment styles. So they like to do the quiz and kind of see where they fall. And then things start making more sense to them and they can start doing the work of, you know what, I, I really find that once clients have a framework for understanding why things happen the way they did, they're mm-hmm. better able to contextualize their experiences and gain a better grasp on them and be able to do the healing work and move forward and do the forgiveness work that comes after that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how my practice is set up, right? So I have tons of all these, yeah, all these different uh, topics. I have a library of topics and just completely customized to what the client brings in at every moment and every session based on the psychedelic experience that they had or just what they what they ate for lunch yesterday and how they felt about it, right? So it, mm-hmm. there's always something that emerges. So whatever emerges organically, then I laser in on it and help them find limiting core beliefs, help them see how this may or may not influence their lives. Mm-hmm. And they really love all this theory. They really appreciate it. It makes them feel more empowered. And as I said, yeah, like it makes more sense to them and they can find more forgiveness. I want to talk about holding space for pain. Hmm. And I think a lot of people right now, especially, you know, we're still in the midst of the pandemic this is like the era of letting go of things falling apart for people of reinvention of like really going into that cocoon of metamorphosis, whether it's trauma, whether it's the pain of letting go or people, you know, revisiting a past memory that was painful. Mm -hmm. How do we strengthen our capacity to hold space? And I, and I want to ask this question from, for people listening who are, training themselves to hold space for other people. So that's really the perspective. How much is your presence and your capacity to regulate your own nervous system, you know, helpful for someone experiencing pain? What suggestions Mm -hmm. are you offering these people? And where do we find that balance between really feeling it and grieving it fully, but then also, okay, is it time to move on to a new moment? Yeah. You know, and and so anything you want to share about really holding space for people experiencing like a depth of pain, loss, trauma, whatever it is that they're that they're experiencing that is really just hard to hold. And it's hard to hold. And the phrase that comes to mind hearing you, Laura, is, you know, you can only take a person as far as you've gone yourself. And 
You're right. I do believe that a lot of people, especially people that are trained, you know, being trained to hold spaces, to be integration coaches, to be integration facilitators, even their clinical therapists, clinicians that, um, you know, they do hours to learn how to hold therapeutic space for people. Um, pain is still somewhat of a uh, an elephant in the room. I've definitely seen you know, you asked me about my personal experiences. I've seen in my uh, in ayahuasca journeys directly how I was placed in painful ceremonies directly also with the spirit of, you know, the plant whispering in my ear. This will make, this will allow you to hold better painful space for, uh, for your clients. You need to uh, get intimate with your pain first to learn how to hold that uh, so you are able to hold another person's pain as well. Otherwise, you're right. There is a risk of basically uh, your anxiety of not being able to tolerate pain, being brought into the therapeutic relationship and, yeah, rushing people out of the the healing process. I kind of belong to the camp of, um, and this is just kind of like my medicine flavor, I'm the trickster energy of um, a a deep passion for, for depth psychology which goes into all the archetypes and it gets pretty deep and intense in there. And I straight up from the beginning, from the get-go, and I do understand that it does can, it can seem suggestive. And, but again, I feel like that's my medicine. I prepare my clients for rough waters during the journey. I definitely talk with them about the period of disintegration that happens during the integration journey. I believe that it is, it won't be very productive or effective to try to build new foundations that are aligned on top of rotting foundations and old foundations, old paradigms need to be eradicated before you can really plant in anything fresh and anything new. And that period of disintegration slash destruction slash deterioration uh, can be extremely painful, extremely confusing, dark, can cause a lot of anxiety. And yet I find that within that six-month time frame that I, again, I articulate for my clients within that container, there are, there's at least a month or two of that. Of, again, of that pain, of grief, of sadness, of not knowing who I am and not knowing who I need to be. So I prepare my clients ahead of time for that because I believe that, yeah, it, it will ultimately help them uh, build a lot stronger and a lot more aligned with who they are. So I do believe it does depend on, you know, the, you know, the facilitators or the guides, pensions and tolerance for the less uh, mm-hmm. rainbow and spark, you know, rainbow parts of the, of the journey. Uh, but again, teach their own medicine. Different mm-hmm. guides have, you know, as you know, very well know, they pour different medicine. So, yeah. And from a psychotherapy perspective, if you're sitting in session with someone who's really just like getting worked, do you offer, you know, words of encouragement, this too shall pass, or are you more like, let's breathe together? Or is it like, where does, where do you feel that in your body? Is there anything that you can offer for people who are learning to hold space in the immediacy of a moment of, of Mm -hmm. a client feeling a lot of pain? Yes. Uh, so in the moment, a tool that I am also trained in and highly recommend for any type of psychedelic oriented support person is uh, somatic therapy. 
uh, somatic release, either it can be somatic experiencing, sensory motor therapy, Hakomi, and being uh, getting expertise in one of those modalities will definitely be uh, allow you to hold better space. Uh, so some of in- the interventions that I love to use are from somatic experiencing. Uh, one of them is called resourcing, where you teach your client to self-soothe and to find the inner strength wherever they are without needing anyone else to uh, support them. So one example that I love is imagine that you're in the, and you can teach them to this in the moment during the relationship. And of course, it's a tool that they can take with them is, for example, a movement like take both of your hands up and just draw a big rainbow to have uh, both of the palm, your palms meet above your head, drawing an energy from the earth mm-hmm. and then bringing it down, uh, circling your hands back down into your body and your heart. And then doing that again, then allowing them to just go at their own pace. But the idea is to allow, invite them to create it a few times so they have that imprint within their bodies and they can take it along with them once they leave the sessions. So Mm -hmm. that's one really great tool. So I'm all about practicality practices. So yeah, let's hold the space in the session. And here is a tool again that you can take and do on your own. Again, that's a self-shamanism. I really like that. I like practical tools. And I think all of the things that you're sharing are really, really helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm curious where you're meeting your own growth edge right now and, and really what what you've learned in the past few years of like really holding space for mm-hmm. people in terms of like what it means to be a leader in the space mm-hmm. right now. What have you learned and sort of where are you at your own edge? <laughs> Uh, such an amazing question. You know, this is something that honestly is taking me quite a while to own. I've never really thought my, of myself as a psychedelic leader. You know, when everything that I've built has literally been built just by going through the motions and integrating on the everyday. So I never had any desire to be an integration person. I never had in my entire life a desire or even like an inclination to start a nonprofit. I never, uh, I always loved psychology. I always loved self-investigation, but I I never thought that I would be any of the things that I am. I never thought that I would be an author, a writer. I'm discovering all these new things about myself and just putting them into practice. And again, following that guidance through the meditations. And you asked me, am I guided? I'm guided, yeah. And when I write in my journal, I'm guided, absolutely. When I meditate, absolutely, I get divine guidance. Sometimes if I'm clear enough, even like if I'm having conversations with like I'm having with you right now, I have like that guidance, like speaking and I hear it and uh, it speaks through me. So what is being a leader, right? So first of all, as mentioned for me, it's just been about bringing in this information and practice, right? The practicality that I had to bring in from other realities and accommodate them into this reality, quote unquote, And just that practice just has created a completely novel reality. In that practice, I started recognizing gaps, myself being a psyche knot, right? Not psycho knot, by the way, psyche knot. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that you you, said that differently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tribe psyche knot. So being a psyche knot, I needed community. I didn't have people that would support me. I needed tools. 
So I created them, mm -hmm. right? I saw that there is a bit, a large demographic of us that wasn't getting support. And I just started doing, you know, trying to find solutions for these loopholes, right? And I think one thing that I've learned along the way, and this is something that I'm still, uh, you know, in my very young path, I mean, I've only been doing this for five or six years, which is nothing for a psychedelic person, you know, and I'm still so young in, in that type of consciousness, but I have noticed that, you know, I'm definitely a visionary and I'm also an architect and I'm also an implementer because someone's got to do it, right? So I'm holding these three archetypes and trying to make them work together. And now I'm at a stage of, okay, I know, you know that you can do all these things. Cool. You've proven it, but do you have to do all these things? Or maybe you can just concentrate on what you're really gifted at. For example, if I, you know, I can be the visionary and be the artist, be the creator and mm -hmm. learn how to express these visions good enough for another person to architect mm -hmm. them and for another person to implement them. So the leadership definitely holds these three aspects and so I'm learning how to basically like work with the tension between these three right now. Psychedelic leadership is also definitely learning of uh, how to be telling of possibilities as well as, again, practicing and expressing that practice, right? Mm -hmm. It means that you have to have the courage to trailblaze, a lot of courage to mess up. And I've messed up a lot and fallen on my ass so many times and being a public person in the community, you know, mm. psychedelia is in Los Angeles. We're one of the first, if not the first integration communities in Los Angeles. And it's, you know, being a person that still undergoes a lot of healing myself, there's, you know, you can imagine that it's not always pretty, but, you know, I just had to learn to accept that that's part of my journey and part of my medicine. And that actually a lot of people have shared with me you know, you give me so much courage just by demonstrating, you, know, you give me permission mm. by giving myself permission. I'm giving myself permission to mess up and just keep going. Then other people get permission too to just, you know, show up authentically to see that they have gifts to see that, you know, this healing journey, whatever it is, mm. we all have different takes on it. Does it ever end? No. Are you going to wait for it to end for you to get up and like be and shine your beautiful light that you're here to shine? So a lot of that for me has been about that is just being uh, bold enough to express myself, to dare to express myself, to dare to express my art and my creations and yeah, see who would stick around. And, you know, a lot of people didn't and a lot of people did. And so that's kind of, I feel like the summary of my journey and also what psychedelic leadership is mm. transparency, authenticity, and also just, you know, looking outside from the personal to the transpersonal, see beyond the self, see, recognize the needs of the people that are walking this path beside you and, and learn how to articulate it even better than they can articulate it. And then they can hear mm -hmm. themselves in you. Mm, girl, I feel you. You, when you step out in this space, you just have to be ready that there's going to be criticism. Yeah. There's always going to be someone who disagrees with what you choose to do. And I think that that actually, the way that we hold space for those conversations, I think is also a really important topic. You know, there's so many different ways to, to hold space in the psychedelic community. Psychedelic leadership is taking on a myriad of forms and a lot mm -hmm. of people disagree about different practices. So I'm curious, how do you go about that? And what have you learned in those moments where you've received harsh criticism? And then how do you differentiate what's theirs and what's yours? 
And how much of that do you let into your life? And how much of that do you say, okay, no, thank you. I'm not going to be paying attention to that. You know, I'm finding it such a dynamic balance. I'm curious where where you're at with that process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, the amount of criticism I received, just being being who I am in my entire life, not just from this community, but is just um, is pretty is pretty big Uh, from the psychedelic community. Absolutely. Definitely from all levels of leadership. Uh, How did I accept it? Well, it depends. In the beginning of my journey, all of my trauma came out being projected on everyone else. And uh, I definitely went through some type of a dark night of the soul, you know, being reflect, like a lot of my wounds just came out reflected through the community and the people that I was very close with to whom, you know, I'm grateful now because I understand that they were my, some of my greatest teachers and uh, we've been able to just, you know, understand that our soul contract has been fulfilled and we're moving on. And, uh, but that took me a few good years to really uh, learn that it's not my truth to get hurt. It's not my truth. It's my, my inner wounded child that needed the recognition that needed the validation a lot of that definitely, by the way, I do want to add this to the conversation. A lot of that came out based on my credentials and what credentials were allowed, quote unquote, to facilitate integration therapy and what credentials were not allowed to facilitate integration therapy. Again, this is a question I get asked all the time. And I went through all the loopholes that have to do with that because when I was granted my psychology degree, I wasn't a clinician and I was I want to use the word attack because that's the word, the word I used back then. I felt like I was under attack by the clinician community for basically infringing on their clinical space for daring to allow peer integration support. So I went through a lot of um, learning back then about all, you know, the, the legal issues, the licensing issues, who can do what and and yeah, I learned a lot about myself and the journey. And also at the end of the day, I learned that I'm actually, again, my medicine is, I'm more, I've always been more of the underdog, more of the underground, more of the uh, alternative. And yeah, maybe I wanted to get licensed in the past to get approval, but now I feel like actually I can be more of service, not being licensed and demonstrating that we can do this work with a very high level of ethics and service and not have to get some type of a credential. When people offer you really harsh criticism, how do you hold that? Right. So the criticism. So along the way, I have learned, number one, that if you want to play in the arena, you're going to get hit. Mm -hmm. If you're going to, if you don't want to get hit, you can remain a spectator. And actually a lot of spectators are those providing the hits. Mm -hmm. I've also learned that. So First of all, recognizing that I always try to differentiate who is the person that is providing me with this feedback. Everyone that sells anything to you is always speaking from themselves and is always speaking from their own truth and their own reality. So whatever people are saying to you, even if it's good intentioned and, you know, with with a high level of, um, again, acknowledgement and wanting to help you improve, it's still things that they're seeing within themselves. So just understanding that, that again, people will see what they want to see based on their own experience, based on the lens that they have, the glasses that they have on their faces. So understanding that and also learning that everything that people tell you is information. Information about who this person is, what their current state are and what they're looking for. Uh, And when I learned to view, again, every dialogue as information, 
uh, it completely it transcended the uh, the wounded or toxic energy that can come from thinking, oh, is it criticism or not? Again, I'm seeing it now as information, which is it neutralizes it. So it's more neutral. And then I can decide from that neutral place, how do I want to use this information? How can I use it to my advantage, to my favor, right? So, okay, if I'm getting this certain feedback from my audience, it just means that maybe this is not what they need. They need something else. For me as an entrepreneur, as a leader that, you know, I want to serve, I want to be better at what I do, then that means I need to listen better to really understand what they're trying to tell me slash what their current needs are and how I can fulfill those needs for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a great book that I, I used, very simple and just really practical. Again, that word practical book that helped me understand that whole information bit and that really helped me move through the whole criticism uh, aspect is uh, called Playing Big by Tara Moore. So it's a great beginner's book for women leaders or aspiring leaders. Mm, That's wonderful. I'll add that to the show notes. Thanks for that recommendation. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially in the psychedelic space where we're talking about this notion of like giving ourselves permission. And then it's so easy to look at other people and think like, wow, you're giving yourself so much permission. You're like bulldozing through this space and like, maybe you should give yourself less permission, you know? And it's like where our own judgments reside. And I like this notion of like giving ourselves permission from a place of really holding that permission with so much responsibility that we can actually really embrace integrity and responsibility. And that if we are giving ourselves permission, like we really need to own all repercussions of that. Yes. Yeah. Responsibility is a big word. And so another way to learn or from that, that another way that I found that has been helpful for me, you know, so how do I differentiate? And, you know, and a lot of the feedback is great. It really is great. But how do I make sure that I work out of integrity is, again, I have, um, I keep studying, I keep learning, I keep educating myself. I stay in touch with my students. I stay in touch with my clients. And, and this is probably the biggest aspect of this work is to have mentors, to have elders Again, the support aspect, someone else that is not you, that can see things from the outside, Mm -hmm. that can provide feedback and people that you trust that have been doing the work and they can keep you in check. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that I can do better and the only person I'm going to compare myself to at the end of the day is just who I was yesterday. Mm -hmm. If I keep looking at what other people are doing in this field, it'll just, you know, there's so much going on that I can lose focus very quickly from my art. So I learned that I need to keep myself in check by, again, by doing my own work, by no, by holding myself to a certain standard, uh, which is, again, having mentors, staying in touch with my psychedelic teachers and getting that guidance, doing the practices every day that would enable me to have that clarity and continuously receive that guidance and just continue being transparent with my audience. So as long as I'm doing these four things, uh, I feel like really that's the best I can do. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, just as a side note for people listening, I just want to really encourage everyone in the psychedelic space to communicate feedback with kindness. I think this is a big responsibility that we have right now. We don't need to attack each other. You know, anything that you hear from people on this show, take what you resonates and leave the rest reach out, have a conversation about it and come from a a open-hearted, open-minded place. Yes, absolutely. I second that. I'd love to talk about your psychedelic training programs. So you have the Psyched Soul Academy 
And is that different than the professional certification program? It's the same. It's the same. It's just currently I've been waiting for it to get trademarked and now it is. It's in the process of that. So the Psych Soul Academy is does include uh, my professional certificate program, uh, which basically, uh, you know, the years of being a, a pioneer and a teacher in this field, I constantly got asked, how did you get to do what you do? Where can I learn to do what you do? How can I get started? And people ask me if, you know, aside from the current offerings that I had back then is if I would teach them long term. So I listened to my audience and put together the integration program of my dreams, basically taking all of the years of knowledge that I've had in the field and all the different hats I tried on in the terms of the different trainings, of course, learning from my mistake and a lot of like wasted time on things that I, you know, as a trailblazer, a lot of things that I did not know and really had to take shots in the dark, trying to articulate what I'm even looking for and needing in this space that would help me support my clients better. So taking all of that and packaged it into a really beautiful program that I'm so proud of. Uh, So it's an experiential integration container, basically taking the students through the protocol that I've developed, that I take my integration clients on. I believe that one of the most important things in this integration providers is to undergo the integration process yourself, which is not something that can be learned cognitively you know, read in a textbook. It's just, it's a just like the psychedelic experience. You have to experience it for yourself. And then again, from that place, from that depth, you will better able to support your clients in their integration journey. So it's a, currently a 12, well, there's three modules. The first two modules are 12 months. And then there's another master module, which is another six months. So it's an 18 month program total. So there's, we have a module, a very solid module of uh, psychedelic education, uh, and then they go through the, uh, what I call the integration initiation, just like they would as my own clients would. Uh, And then after they retrieve their soul medicine and go through that healing tunnel, we go into a sacred entrepreneurship module and they take my blueprint and they basically infuse their own sacred medicine into this blueprint to create a niche integration practice of their own. So it's education, practice, and integration and taking action into consciously, like becoming leaders in the community through creating your own integration practice and uh, your own modality that no one else has invented before. So super creative, super thorough. I'm opening two new groups and the beginning of 2021, which is just around the corner. Yeah. And that's, I'm really proud of that program. Yeah. Do you feel that after people go through your 18 month program, that they would be qualified and educated to hold space for trauma? Uh, yes, but with certain provisions. So this is something that I talk about a lot, right? So I talk about how trauma comes up, I do train them to recognize trauma when they see it and also how to extract it, even when the client can see it. Um, We talk about symptoms. We talk about what it could look like. We talk about how it can come out. But at the end of the day, I tell them, you know, this, we're not clinicians. It doesn't matter what we're trying to do here. Even though I, I firmly believe that the program that I offer is extremely sophisticated. So it's sophisticated, yet we need to operate under law, the laws and jurisdictions of where we live. Uh, which currently, you know, we're living in the United States. We know that licensed clinicians are better equipped to support trauma in any type of setting. 
And basically, I give them tools to to recognize it when they see it and also to be able to articulate how to refer out when they see it. <laughs> so this is something that we talk about continuously in the course, as well as I always drill you know, into them. We, we each have an audience. Don't try to do all the things. There are some things that you're going to be great at. And those are your, that's your soul tribe client. And there are other people that are trained to deal with certain populations way better than you and I can, and let's let them deal with it. So, so I do talk about that and definitely in the supervision that I offer, which is part of the program. So the program includes not just the classes, but we have weekly peer support circles. We have integration circles. We have one-on-one guidance and coaching, and we have mentorship calls and supervision that I run for people who are graduating and are already seeing clients. So they can come to me with any type of question about their practice, about their ethical, about how to support their clients. And then I help them make uh, decisions that are always in favor of the client. And of course, keeping the, you know, the coaches safe and protected as well. So, so definitely we talk about all of that. Hmm. And so what have you really learned about getting a vision like this off the ground? Hmm. It's really a huge vision. And so kudos to you for, for implementing it, but for other people who are, you know, launching programs, I mean, especially in the leadership space, what's the best advice you can give people who are getting big visions off the ground? Uh, again, supervision, have elders that keep checking you, keep educated. Those are my pillars. Without that, I couldn't do anything that I do. You know, each of us has their own, but don't try to do something that you can't, that you're, that is not your, your expertise. Don't try to offer support and something that is not your niche. Just, you know, everyone has a gift, specialize in your gift, offer your gift and let other people concentrate on their gifts and offering their gifts. And so basically to have a team of professionals that again, that each have their gifts and together you build that holistic support structure. Don't aim to do everything on your own because it's number one, not feasible, not sustainable. And it's just, it's not what we're supposed to do. The teaching of the medicine is that we're here to collaborate, <laughs> that we're here to support each other, that we're here to uplift and help each other rise. And that's, that's again, the, the gift of a collective empowerment. And it doesn't uh, bypass the leadership <laughs> We're all learning. We've all learned these lessons. I'm still learning them, you know, deeper and deeper with every interaction that I have. And yeah, so so my key advice is to to keep supported by other experts and professionals and to hone in on your gifts and on your message and concentrate more on service and on making an impact Mm -hmm. rather than your bank account. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's good advice. I like to ask different fun, random questions to close. So I would like to ask you if you could plant one seed that could transmute a limiting belief into an empowering belief for humanity, what would it be? Live with compassion and power. Mm. We're all incredibly powerful. We're all just, um, just waiting to be unlocked. And then I think the work after discovering the power is just learning how to channel that immensity and grace and service and compassion and kindness to be able to uh, inspire others, to uplift others. And so service with compassion and power is my motto. Hmm. And heal, serve, love. That's the journey. Thank you so much, Sheree. It's been quite the pleasure dropping in with you. And I'm excited to see where your path takes you and to keep dancing in this psychedelic space together. Thanks for dancing with me, Laura. I appreciate you. 
Mucha aloha to you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode number six of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or feel free to send me a message over Instagram if we're not yet connected there. I'm at livefreelauraD. I'm going to be leaving you with a song called Let It In by a sister who's been going by Laughing Lady Love, but her new music is going to be coming out under her new name, LL. So definitely encourage you to check her out. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. Just fluid.